sing no other name Jesus Jesus and my heart will sing no other name Jesus sing that one last time my heart will sing Good Sunday morning to you. I want to say welcome to Faith Bible Church. My name is Jay. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're delighted that you've all joined us today. We hope you, we hope that you're blessed by our gathered worship. If you're a guest with us this morning, uh, we want to just invite you at the close of the service. I know you just made your way in, but as you make your way out at the end of this corridor out here that you came in, uh, there's a welcome center. So there's somebody there that uh, wants to greet you, wants to give you more information about Faith Bible Church, might gather a little bit of information from you, figure out how we could minister to you in the weeks ahead. Uh, but we're glad uh, that you're here. It's a blessing to be able to to gather in this way this morning. Hope you grabbed a bulletin on your way in, or at least were given a bulletin on your way in. Uh, you can flip over to the back. I'm going to make a, a, a brief Greater Things uh, construction update here. If you look at the back, you'll see that at the close of 2018, we ended up with about 78% participation uh, in our Greater Things capital campaign. So of the people that, that give to the general budget here at Faith Bible Church, um, about 78% of those are now also giving uh, to Greater Things. So that's a lot of buy-in for uh, what we've got going on out there. And what we've got going on out there, as you can see, is now taking shape and starting to look more like a building. Uh, I think in the weeks ahead, we are quickly approaching the dry-in phase, uh, which means all the work now, or not all the work, but a lot of the work moves inside, uh, and so weather won't be as much of a hindrance, and we'll be able to really accelerate our time, or I don't know if we'll accelerate our timeline. I've got to be careful with Bruce DeFries sitting right here as to what I say, uh, but uh, hopefully things will continue to progress uh, on schedule. Uh, also, inside your bulletin, there is an insert, and this is really what I want to bring most of uh, your attention to. On February 24th, this is our last, that will be our last service in this room. February 24th, our last service in this room. This room is going to be converted into a worship space with a balcony uh, and all kinds of other features. And so that work needs to begin at some point. Uh, and so in the weeks following February 24th, uh, this room is going to be overhauled. And so that means at the beginning of March, March 3rd, all three of our worship services are going to be taking place in the sanctuary. And that comes with, then with new service times. So beginning March 3rd, all three services in the sanctuary, 8 o'clock, 9.30, so not 9.45, 9.30 and 11 a.m. And let me just give you a little bit of information to, to provide some context for how Copernican this shift could possibly be. First service crowd, our first service crowd right now is just under 300 people. Our third service crowd, our 11 o'clock, is just over 300 people. This service uh, is around, on average, 525 people. So we're moving this service at 930 into the sanctuary. 
there are enough chairs in there to accommodate uh, that number of people, but what would really, really help us is if you do not have an ABF, so if, if your ABF hour doesn't uh, dictate what service you go to, you have the freedom to go to any of them, think about going at 8 o'clock or at 11. That would create more space in that middle hour. It would fill out the seats in those other hours and I think uh, be a, a really good step uh, for that sort of interim time. So it's going to be about seven months uh, period that, that you'd be making that, that choice. And so I, I, want, I want you to see this as a tremendous opportunity in front of us. So not an inconvenience, but a real opportunity for our church. Uh, you'll be given a chance to, to serve each other as you're patient uh, with these changes. Uh, you'll be given a chance to defer your preferences. Maybe your preference is to worship in this room and not that other room. Well, you're going to be worshiping in there, deferring your preferences, uh, maybe stealing somebody's seat who's been sitting there for a, you know, a, a generation or something. Um, they'll have an opportunity to defer their preferences to you. You'll be able to help each other as uh, we navigate that space and, and make room for, for one another in that room. Because in some respects, really, with the three service hours we have right now, we almost exist as three churches. Uh, there's not a lot of overlap. And so in the fall, we're going to have two service times, and I think that's going to help us get to know each other a lot better, a lot more overlap. And so this interim step is really a step toward uh, that greater integration and unity in our church body. Now, I'll say this, March through the end of September, those seven months, uh, we're referring to it as a staff as the tribulation period because um, <clears throat> we think it's going to be difficult. Uh, and so we just need you uh, to be patient and, uh, and forbearing during that, that time. I think on the, on the back end of it, we'll certainly say uh, that it's all worth it. So if you have questions uh, about these changes, there are some frequently asked questions on the back of the insert. But uh, if those aren't satisfactory, come to me, come to another one of the elders. We'd be happy to meet with you or talk with you uh, about some of these changes. And you're going to be continuing to hear about these changes as the weeks go along. We're going to inundate you with this information because uh, we don't want it to take anybody by surprise. So let's now pray together as we shift our hearts back to, to worship. Uh, bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord. The psalmist writes in Psalm 133, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Father, we, we come to and we, we just appeal for your grace. Your grace to, to drive us to, to greater unity, to, um, to greater love and service toward one another. We know that that pleases you. We know that that brings you glory. And it brings a spirit of goodness into the church family that we enjoy here. God, give us a gospel unity. So unity that goes beyond preferences or times or um, schedules, but a real unity in the truth of the gospel. Make it the main thing in our church and use this upcoming time to solidify that. Give us patience. Give us joy. Lord, it's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. So we look to you, the Lord who is joy, to, to always be giving us joy. And Lord, as we think about the remainder of our time here together this morning, we ask that you would just draw near to us. It's our heart to draw near to you. So through the worship and through the word, God, draw near to us. Draw us to yourself uh, and be glorified in doing so. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jay. Uh, I invite you to stand, and uh, as we continue this morning, uh, we want to teach you all a, a new song, and uh, this, this new song is actually a, a really old song. It's, it's uh, based off of an old Isaac Watts hymn uh, called Hymn Number 23, and it talks about what it's going to be like one day uh, whenever we finally get to heaven, whenever we finally get to uh, get off this fallen world and, and experience the glory of the Lord and the glory of heaven in person. And so uh, we're going to teach it to you, but uh, I encourage you to, uh, to just jump in. It's called Absent from Flesh. Absent from flesh, oh blissful thought, what joy this moment brings. And freed from the blame my sin has brought, 
from pain and death and its sting. Absent from flesh, oh glorious day, in one triumphant stroke, my reckoning paid, my charge is dropped, in the bond round my hands I'm broke, cause I go. from flesh then rise my soul where feet no wings can climb beyond the sky where planets roll and beyond all keep of time cause I go sing this last song this morning it is because of Christ alone it is in Christ alone it is through Christ alone that we've been made right with the Lord that we can because of him we can experience that glory that we just sang about uh, so let's proclaim this together in Christ alone my hope is found he is my light my strength my song this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, 
When fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Father, we come to you today and we recognize that there is no one who is like Christ. God, Jesus is utterly and supremely matchless and his accomplishments on our behalf are infinitely sufficient. 
So God, we thank you for that truth that we just sang that till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Jesus and Jesus alone is our hope, God. And we thank you that, that as your wrath was satisfied, that your love could then become magnified to us. And it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this morning. Amen. Be seated. Well, it's great to see everyone here this morning. Thank you so much for coming to be with us here at Faith Bible Church. We, we so appreciate your presence with us, and I think sometimes you maybe don't realize what your presence means here at this church to all of us. So thank you for being here, and if you're visiting with us, we're especially glad you're here this morning. We welcome you, and we pray that your time here with us will be a great blessing to you. Uh, This is an exciting Sunday for our church, an exciting uh, Sunday for me as uh, we begin a new book study together. We're going to begin a a series on 1 Peter that will take us through uh, the middle or near the end of the summer. And uh, we've titled this series, uh, Still Standing. So if you're turning your Bible with me to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, I want to introduce the book this morning and look at these uh, two verses together. So let me read uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So reads God's inspired and errant word. Let's, uh, let's commit this study of 1 Peter to the Lord. Now, let's bow our heads together as we, we look to the Lord's help for His help. Father, we thank You for Your inspired and errant Word that's able to make us wise unto salvation. We come before You this morning as we launch into this new study to uh, commit ourselves to You. We pray that You will illuminate Your Word to us by Your Holy Spirit throughout this study every week. We pray that You'll teach us and transform us Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. And Father, we pray that we will be different people at the end of this study than we were at the beginning as a result of your working in our hearts and lives through your word. So we commit ourselves to you and to your grace now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Most all of you know the story of Martin Luther. Uh, He was a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. I mean, 1517, he drew up his 95 theses where he condemned many of the, the corrupt practices in the, the Roman Catholic Church. And as a result of that, he was drawn into a prolonged conflict with the church. I mean, he, he ignited a real firestorm. And the real issues were the, the authority of Scripture and uh, the salvation of sinners through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. As a result of all this, in 1521, uh, Martin Luther was excommunicated by the Pope. And he was called to appear before the Emperor Charles V uh, to, to answer charges and defend his beliefs. So he, he appeared there. He, re- he refused to recant or to rescind what, his, what he believed, what he'd said. He was declared an, outlick, uh, an outlaw and a, and a heretic by the church. And uh, many of you know his famous uh, final words there in his defense. He said, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, God help me. What powerful words. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, God help me. Martin Luther stood courageously for the gospel, uh, for Jesus Christ, and uh, for the word of God. And he did that in the face of hammering opposition against him. And when you think about it, that's really the calling, though, for every believer in Jesus Christ. All of us are being called in this time in which we live to stand for Christ and to stand for the gospel and to stand for the Word of God and to live these truths out in our lives even when it's unpopular to do so. And really, in essence, that's the message of 1 Peter. I mean, 1 Peter, I can't think of a a book that's more of a book for our times in the Bible than this book. Because this book was written to call believers to stand firm in the gospel in the midst of a Christian unfriendly culture, a culture that was in many ways hostile uh, to their beliefs. And we see this here from the very first verse that's written. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, obviously Peter, the apostle Peter is the author of this book, uh, the great leader of the 12 apostles. And notice who he writes it to. He writes it to those who reside as aliens. This word means uh, uh, those who are away from home, if you will, scattered throughout Pontus, 
Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter is writing here, I believe, to a group of primarily Jewish believers. Now, certainly there were some Gentiles there as well, but primarily Jewish believers. The reason I say that is he calls them scattered. And that word in the Greek is diaspora, which is a technical term for Jews living outside the land of Israel. Also remember, Peter was the apostle to the Jews, while uh, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And also this book, 1 Peter, is filled with lots of Old Testament quotations and allusions that would fit better if it's primarily a Jewish audience. So he's writing to a scattered congregation of primarily Jewish believers in these five Roman provinces that are in the, the northern, central, and southern part of what is modern-day uh, Turkey. That's the area where these five Roman provinces are. By the way, if you want some more background about the book of 1 Peter, I've um, posted a, a, some, some uh, information online where you go and listen to the sermon. You can access that there on our website. It'll give you some more of the background information uh, about this. But uh, Peter writes to them, and he writes to them calling them to stand firm in the midst of a society that was hostile against them. And he calls them in this first verse, aliens. So they're resident aliens or elect exiles or they're strangers in this world. And maybe it's just because I'm getting older or maybe it's because of what's happening in our culture, but more and more I feel like a stranger in this culture in which we find ourselves. We should feel like strangers to the, the views and the values that are in our culture today. Uh, we're strangers and aliens in the sense that more and more, I think, as believers, we're finding ourselves swimming against the tide of the prevailing culture uh, that we live in. And so right from the outset, Peter calls these readers aliens, strangers in the society in which they find themselves. Now go over to the very end of 1 Peter. We'll look at the beginning of it and in the end. These are kind of bookends. But look at the very end of the book, and we find out why the Apostle Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote these words. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, through Silvanus, or, or actually that, that's Silas, through Silas, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So he says, look, this is why I've written. I've written testifying and exhorting to you. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. What I think he's saying there when he says this is the true grace of God, I think that's the whole letter. He's saying, look, this whole letter I've written to you is the grace of God. In other words, this is a summary of the Christian life. So 1 Peter is kind of a, a handbook for what we're to believe and how we're to live. And he's saying, I've written these things to you, and you need to stand firm in it. Now, as we go through 1 Peter, as we go through this over the next few months, we're going to discover that the believers Peter's writing to weren't suffering physical persecution. No one was being killed or martyred. Uh, no one was being beaten physically for their faith. What we'll find out is they're being mocked and maligned and mistreated for their faith in Jesus Christ. As we read through the book, we're going to find over and over again the words, you're being insulted, slandered, reviled reproached. In other words, it's verbal uh, mistreatment and maligning of these believers in Jesus Christ. So the persecution they were facing wasn't state-sponsored, kind of ongoing, constant persecution, but it was more sporadic, kind of intermittent, verbal persecution. Um, this has often been called soft persecution, or some people even called it kind of polite persecution. But it's verbal slandering and just mocking of what we believe. Now, I don't think I have to tell you that that parallels or mirrors a lot of what we see in our culture today. Again, this is a book for our time. Because in many ways, the modern church is beginning to look more like the early church. I mean, increasingly hostile culture is encroaching upon the doors of Christianity and the church. Some of you may uh, keep up with these kinds of things, but there, there's a staggering rise in our culture of a group called the nuns. Now, not N-U-N-S, but the N-O-N-E-S. People with no religious affiliation, atheists, agnostics. 35% of millennials now identify as nuns, and it's rapidly rising. Um, did you know that uh, 3,500 churches in America close their doors every year? 
and 80% of the ones that aren't closing have either plateaued or are declining. And because of this, secularism is rising in our culture and running rampant. And there's a, a zealous militant secularism we see and a cultural reshaping of our country. And the dominant forces out there in our culture, in, in the media and entertainment and all of those areas, they mock God and His Word, and they laud and actually applaud the things that God opposes. So by any metric you want to use, mocking Christianity in our country is at an all-time high. And the American church, we're kind of heading into uncharted and unknown waters and difficult circumstances that American Christians have never experienced before. There's an increasing hostility to the Christian faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it seems like our culture today is allergic to absolute truth. Now, the only absolute truth they believe in is that there's no absolute truth, right? I mean, that's an absolute truth in itself. But, but they seem to be allergic to absolute truth. And they're unwelcoming and often even hostile to biblical Christianity. Um, Bible-believing Christians have been compared in our culture to ISIS, and we're, you know, we, we want to bring in some Taliban-style theocracy, they say. We're called bigots and haters and Nazis. I was reading recently there's a group of gay activists that are calling for all Christians to be thrown to the lions. Um, you all hear about these things all the time. One, one thing I read about is a teacher in New Jersey was suspended for giving a student a Bible on school grounds, even though the student requested it. Um, a football coach in Washington was placed on leave because after the game, he led a silent prayer with his players. You may have read about this. The fire chief in Atlanta uh, was fired because he'd self-published a book where he defended Christian moral teaching. It was a brief critique in the book of homosexuality. He's fired from his job. Uh, a Marine was court-martialed for pasting a, a Bible verse above her desk. Student groups like InterVarsity are being kicked off college campuses all across America. One more recent one, it just is taking place really right now, is Karen Pence, the, uh, pre the wife of the Vice President Mike Pence, is going to be teaching at a school in Washington, D.C., a Christian school, and she's just being skewered by uh, the press and by many because the school upholds uh, biblical teaching, and uh, they... They exclude practicing homosexual and transgender students from attending school there or being on staff. And uh, she's just being lambasted for that. And so if you believe in our culture that what I'm saying is not true, then just go out there in the popular culture and say to people, you believe there are just two genders. Or you believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. Or that you believe the Bible is the Word of God, that it's true. And we should mold our lives to its teachings. Or tell someone that Jesus Christ is the only way to God and see what happens. That's when the bullets begin to fly. It's not pretty. I mean, we're labeled as bigots and, and haters and narrow-minded and old-fashioned and living in the past. Uh, we, we immediately kind of meet a wall of resistance. And many are pointing out that the 21st century is going to be more like the 1st century than any other in history. Uh, they were a pre-Christian society in the first century. We're now living increasingly in a post-Christian society. And believers today kind of live on the margins. I mean, we're no longer at the center of culture. One man I read this week described it this way. He said, we live in hardening times. Um, Os Guinness, who's a, a great thinker, a great philosopher, a Christian man, who's a great discerner of our times, he says the modern church is facing the greatest challenge the church has ever encountered. So what do we do in times like these? Do we just kind of uh, give up and just bemoan all of this and just kind of go off by ourselves and get sour about it? Or do we become angry and hostile and bitter against the culture we live in? Well, in this book, in 1 Peter, tells us what we need to do and what we need to know in order to stand firm in a culture that mocks and maligns um, our faith. This book is a letter of encouragement and hope to believers in a Christian unfriendly culture. Now, the striking thing to me about this book is, with the people facing these difficulties, these struggles, where does Peter start? He starts with our salvation. And that's why I've called this message this morning, First Things First. Because Peter is saying, look, in a culture where you're mocked and maligned for your faith, the first thing you need to know is who you are and whose you are. 
You need to get the, the bedrock foundational issue of your salvation settled and understood. So Peter takes us all the way back to eternity past, where our salvation was forged in the sovereign decrees of God himself. And he's saying if we're going to stand, we have to understand what God has done for us, and we have to understand our salvation. That, that's the anchor, really, that we hold on to. It's, it's the foundation for everything else. So I want to talk here this morning in these verses about the great salvation that God has given to us. And you'll notice it's Trinitarian. We've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. The, the entire Trinity stands behind uh, the salvation that God has given to us. And so I want to use this Trinitarian formula here this morning as our outline. We've been chosen by God the Father. Uh, we've been called by the Holy Spirit, and we're cleansed by God the Son. But notice it all begins with our being chosen by the Father. The Apostle Peter, writing to these beleaguered believers, just opens up here by saying, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. He doesn't make any apology. He's not embarrassed to say it. He's saying, look, you were chosen by the foreknowledge of God. Now, he jumps right into the deep end of the pool, I guess you could say here theologically. And let me just say this. I hope this morning that everybody has your Bible open, or if you look at the Bible on your electronic device, you'll do that. And especially younger people here today, you need to get these basic truths of what God has done, what He said He's done, affirm in your mind. This is the bedrock and the foundation for all of life. And so he starts off and says that we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, the word chosen here, another way it's often translated is elect, that we are God's elect or chosen. And the Greek word, it's, it's not a complicated Greek word, it means to pick out or to select or to choose. So this idea of God choosing people or selecting people is stated clearly in this passage. Now, the doctrine of election is found throughout the Bible. God chose Abraham out of all the, the people in the world he could have chosen. He chose Abraham. He chose the Jewish people. A God is a choosing God. We could look at a lot of verses. I don't want to do that this morning. I look at uh, uh, many of them, but let me just mention a couple. In John 15, 16, Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. Pretty simple, right? You didn't choose me, I chose you. Ephesians 1, 4 the Apostle Paul says about God, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So before, before time began, before the foundation of the world, God chose people in Jesus Christ. So let me just say this up front. The Bible teaches the doctrine of election. It's indisputable. I mean, here it says, we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. I'll hear people say sometimes, well, I don't believe in the doctrine of election. Well, you have to. It's in the Bible. I mean, the word elect or chosen is used in many times. The real issue is not the issue of election, but the issue is what is the basis of that election, right? Most people don't chafe under the fact that God chose people, but why did God choose people? What's the basis of that? And you'll notice it tells us here, we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's the basis of His choosing. Now, for most people, when they see that word foreknowledge, they just take it to mean that God simply knew what was going to happen ahead of time, right? So what God did is He looked down the corridors of time, they would say, and saw who was going to believe, and so then he chose those people. So he looked down the quarters of time. They, in their own free will, chose him. So based on that, then he chooses them. Now, there's several problems with that view. One is that really wouldn't be election because God would not be choosing us. Rather, we would be choosing him, and it's just like we just simply didn't know about it. Also, here's a bigger problem. When God looked down the quarters of time to see who was going to believe in him, you know who he would have found? Nobody. Nobody would believe because we can't believe on our own. In Romans 3.11, it says, there's no one who seeks after God, no, not one. What did Jesus say in John 6.44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And actually, the, the Greek word, you could translate it more strongly. Jesus says, uh, uh, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me drags him or pulls him. 
In other words, if God looked down the annals of history to see who would believe in him, he wouldn't find anybody because everyone would reject him. The Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sins, and dead people can't respond on their own. So we would never respond to him without his working in our lives. So the bottom line really in all of this in many ways is, who makes the first move? And the answer is God does. God has to make the first move. God has to take the initiative. God is the one who makes the difference. I like it. That's the way Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, if there's a difference between an unconverted lost person and me, it's God who made the difference. And he's saying, that's really what we're saying when we talk about election. God made the difference. The Bible says salvation is of the Lord. So when God chose us, it wasn't based on anything we had done because we weren't even on the scene yet. And it's not based on anything that God saw we would do. Otherwise, we could ultimately take credit for it. Here's a great thought. Get get this fixed in your mind. God chose us before time because he chose to do so based on his sovereign will, not anything in us. God didn't choose us because he knew we would believe. He chose us so that we would believe. Now, another thing here, this word foreknowledge, it's the word in Greek, it's prognosis. We get our word prognosis from this word. And the word means more than just to know ahead of time. It literally means to to forelove. Foreknowing means foreloving. In fact, if you go down to chapter 1 and verse 20 of this very chapter, speaking of Jesus, in verse 20, it says, speaking of Jesus, it says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So God the Father foreknew God the Son before the foundation of the world. That obviously means a lot more than God just knew about Jesus, but He foreloved Him. He was in an intimate relationship with Him. So foreknowledge means to set your love upon someone. There's an old gospel uh, chorus that says this. It says, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. What's the final line? Because he first loved me. That's foreknowledge. God set his love upon me, and because he foreknew me and foreloved me, then I love him. Again, God didn't choose us because he knows we will believe. He chooses us so that we will believe. And this idea of foreknowledge tells us that our salvation was not some accident or afterthought, but we have been the loving objects of God's concern for all eternity. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, God had to choose me before I was born because if he'd waited until after I was born, he certainly would have never chosen me. And I like that. All of us remember probably when we were kids, I guess they still do this, you, you get a couple of captains and, and you pick teams, right, for, for some sport or whatever. And, you know, there's always the, the people that get picked last. And uh, Garrison Keeler, I was reading an article by him not long ago. He's uh, the Home Prairie Network and all that. He's not on there anymore, but he's a, an interesting entertainer. But I guess he was very unathletic, and he made this statement in an article I read. He said, I've never been chosen early or with much enthusiasm. <laughs> Some of us can relate to that, right? You're never chosen very early or with much enthusiasm. But as I read that, I thought to myself, have, we, have you ever thought about the fact that you and I are so valuable to God, that God chose us early, before time began, and God chose us with enthusiasm? God didn't just say, well, I guess I'll take him, or I guess I'll take her. God, think about this. God, before we were born in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, he chose us with enthusiasm. He foreknew us. He foreloved us. And he chose us to be his own. Now, the main objection to this doctrine always is people will say, well, this is not fair. You know, it's not fair that God chooses some and doesn't choose others. When we read the Bible, we have to understand God doesn't owe His grace and mercy to anyone. In fact, if it's given to people because of what they do, it's not grace. You and I deserve judgment, and there is no injustice with God. If God was fair and just, every one of us here this morning, every person who's ever lived, would be lost for all eternity. If God saves one person... It's because he is infinitely merciful and gracious. The old Puritan William Perkins said it like this, 
We must not think that God does a thing because it's good and right, but rather the thing is good and right because God does it. God can never be called unjust for choosing to save some because there are none who deserve to be saved. That's the issue we all have to understand and realize. God, if he were just and fair, ultimately would send us all to hell. It's his mercy that any of us are saved. Now, another question that comes up in this slide always is, well, then why did God choose me? Why did God choose me? Why did God move into my life and save me? Well, let me tell you this. It's not because you're a better person or more sincere or more worthy than your neighbors or your friends who don't know Christ. Because if any of that were true, then you could take credit for your salvation and God wouldn't receive the glory for it. No, God chooses us simply because He chose to choose us. It's His mercy. Romans 9.16 is a powerful verse. It does not depend on the man who wills, and it does not depend on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It doesn't depend on our willing. It doesn't depend on our running, but it depends on God who has mercy. J.I. Packer says this. He says, why did God choose me? The Bible answer is because in his mercy he was pleased to, and that is the end of the matter. And then he closes with this. I love this. He says, at this point, therefore, you should stop asking questions and start to worship and give thanks. It's beautiful. Another objection to this is people will say, well, don't we do something? No, don't we believe? And of course, we do believe. We trust in Christ. We believe in him. But we only believe in Him because of the sovereign work of God in our lives. Did you know even the faith that we exercise in Jesus Christ, we place in Him, is given to us by God? I mean, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. H.A. Ironside tells a story about a man uh, years ago who, who got saved and gave his testimony, told how God sound. Uh, sought him and found him and loved him and called him and saved him and delivered him and cleaned him up and so wonderful testimony to the glory of God. And afterwards, a man came up to him and he said, you know, I appreciate all you said about what God did for you, but you didn't mention anything about your part in it. Salvation is really part us and part God, and you should have mentioned something about your part. Oh, the guy said, well, I apologize. I'm sorry. I really should have mentioned that my part was running away from God and God's part was running after me until I found him. I like that. I mean, that's our part. Our part is to run away as rebels from God. And God's part is to chase us down and for, to allow us to find Him and to be saved. When we talk about doctrines like this, it, sometimes it, it puzzles people. It disturbs them. Uh, they want to debate it. Look, there's a great deal of mystery to all of this that I don't, I don't profess to understand. And that's true of a lot of Bible doctrines. I mean, here this morning I've mentioned the Trinity. They're mentioned in this verse, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one essence. I don't understand that fully. Uh, the virgin birth, uh, the inspiration of the Bible, even God Himself. I mean, just to get your mind around a God who's eternal and who's infinite. Uh, the full humanity and the full deity of Jesus in one person. Uh, those things are incomprehensible to us. But I believe them because they're revealed in the Bible. And I believe sovereign election because I believe the Bible teaches it. But I also believe that human beings are responsible because the Bible teaches that as well. You say, well, how can the Bible teach divine sovereignty and human responsibility at the same time? Because they're both true in the mind of God. And just because we don't understand them uh, doesn't make them untrue. It's kind of like if you've ever seen a large machine and you've got a wheel over here going this way and another one over here going that way. They're going different directions, but yet at some point and in some way, uh, they come together to serve a common purpose and, and to a common goal. And in the same way, truths that to our fallen, finite minds can seem contradictory can serve the purposes of God in accomplishing um, our salvation. You know, someone as well said that a God who could be fully understood is no God at all. I mean, our God is an infinite, eternal God. We're never going to be able to understand His ways. He says, you know, my ways are higher than your ways as the heavens are above the earth. And to me, it's interesting, like here, Peter just talks about election. He doesn't explain it. He just expounds it. He doesn't attempt to harmonize it with every other truth. 
And I don't think we should try to do what the authors of Scripture, we, we shouldn't try to do what they don't try to do. Our response, I think, is to simply accept this and in humble, childlike confidence, trust in the wisdom and the love of God that He's revealed to us. So we see what God's done here in eternity past. These last two points are going to be really quick, by the way, in case you're looking at your watch. The next step here is we're called by the Spirit. Notice he says that we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So God in eternity past chose us. He selected us. But in time, the Holy Spirit comes and sets us apart for salvation. That's what the word sanctify means. He sets us apart. So if you're a believer here this morning, there was a time when you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit came and He set you apart from darkness to light, from death to life, from unbelief to faith, and brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. What does 1 Corinthians 12, 4 tell us? No one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. It's the only way we can do it. It's the work of the Spirit in our lives. So we see here that the Father chose us by His foreknowledge, that the Spirit set us apart, and the ultimate goal in all of this is that we might obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. This is the cleansing of the, by the Son. This is the ultimate goal of all of this, is that you and I will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and obey it, believe it and trust in it. This is basically a synonym here for saving faith. It's, it's the equivalent of being saved. It's not talking about our obedience after we become a believer. It's that initial act of obedience when we trust in Jesus Christ. We obey the call of the gospel to trust in Him. And he says, all of this is that you can obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. And this is an allusion back to Exodus chapter 24 when all the, the Jewish people were gathered there and Moses was with them and read from the book of the law and they committed themselves to obey it. And Moses took blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And Peter sees a parallel and when you and I believe the gospel and obey the call to trust in Christ, when we do that, God comes and in a figurative way sprinkles us with the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood, His sacrificial death is personally applied to our lives. As the Bible says, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And as a result of all that, grace and peace are ours in the fullest measure. For the elect, there is no limit on the grace and the peace of God that He gives to us. We can never come to the end of either one of them. Now, you may be here this morning and you're a person who's never trusted in Jesus Christ. You've never obeyed that call to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you've been listening to what I'm saying. And you say, well, what if I'm not one of the elect? You know, what if I'm not one of the people God chose? Well, let me just say this. I love the way D.L. Moody put it years ago. He said, the elect are the whosoever wills and the non-elect are the whosoever wants. You come to Jesus Christ this morning and believe in Him. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast him out. So you come to Jesus and believe in Him this morning and respond to the call of the gospel if you've never done that. And for those of us who've trusted Christ, my prayer is that this great doctrine will humble us. God has done it all for you and for me. There's no place for boasting. God has done everything. He chose us according to His foreknowledge. He called us by the Spirit. And He came and cleansed us through the Son when we responded to that message and believed in Him. Knowing these truths should create a profound humility in every one of our lives. I was reading a book this week uh, about Billy Graham by Jerry Jenkins. It's called In His Own Words. And it talks about um, Billy Graham and, and how he worked very much in his life to be a humble man. But uh, in, in 2007, right before the opening of the Billy Graham Library, Billy Graham was given a tour of, of the library. I think he was around 90 at the time. And um, they were asking his, his impressions of this library that was devoted to, uh, to, to his uh, work that he'd done. And after extolling all the qualities of the exhibits there, he especially liked the area that was devoted to his wife, Ruth. Billy Graham kind of stood there with his head down, and someone asked him, what's wrong? And he said, well, there's just one thing about this place I don't like. There's too much Billy and not enough Jesus. As I read that this week, I tell you, that pierced down into my heart. 
Because I thought, how often in my life it's too much Mark and not enough Jesus. And to me, a doctrine like this should lay us low and cause us to give glory and honor and praise to God. And we, we marvel every day at His goodness and His greatness at what He's done for us. And to, 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 know, to know of a truth that you and I would be and we would go to hell someday if God had not chosen us and selected us and called us and cleansed us. To humbly rejoice in this great salvation. We've been chosen. We've been called. We've been cleansed. The entire Trinity secures our salvation. So look, we may be mocked by our culture. We may be maligned by it. We may be mistreated and marginalized. We may be unwelcome, and our beliefs may be unwelcome. But through the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you and I have a wonderful, great salvation that God has given to us. It can never be taken away. It's an old story. I know I've told this before, but Donald Gray Barnhouse preached a sermon, and sometimes at the end of his sermons, Barnhouse would just give a, a litany of the beautiful, wonderful things God's done for us. And he just would go into it. He kind of had it memorized. You know, he's called us, and he's, he's cleansed us and forgiven our sins, and he's adopted us, and it's all these great truths that God has done for us. And he, then he closed in prayer. After the service, a boy came up to him, a 12-year-old boy, and Barnhouse was a, a guy about 6'3", and the boy wasn't very tall, and he pulled on Barnhouse's coat, and he looked up at him, and he said, uh, Doc, he said, that was a great sermon today. He said, gee, he said, we sure are sitting pretty, aren't we? I love that. You and I are sitting pretty. There's a culture that is more and more against us, and more and more we're swimming against the tide of it. We look at the bedrock of our faith, and we put first things first in life. You and I are sitting pretty. Knowing who we are and whose we are, we can stand firm in this culture. We can stand firm. We need to, to, to stand with love and grace, but we can stand firm with this foundation in our spiritual lives. Bolstered by these words, we can say with Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do nothing else. God help me. May God help us lovingly, graciously, but firmly stand in these days in which we live for the gospel and for Jesus Christ and for God's word. Let's pray together. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's never accepted that call to accept Jesus Christ, I pray that they do it right now where they sit. Right in their own heart, they would take Jesus to be their Savior. They would glory in this wonderful gospel that you provided for us. Father, remind all of us here often that salvation is of the Lord, that you're the one who makes the difference, that we wouldn't spend our time uh, debating the doctrine of election or allowing it to disturb us, but delighting in it, delighting in your sovereign grace and mercy. Father, move us to marvel at the mystery of your great salvation. Humble our hearts before you. Father, I pray in all of us today there'd be less Billy and more of Jesus. May his name be praised forever. Amen. Let's stand together for the benediction as we are dismissed here this morning. Pray that you'll leave here this morning uh, encouraged. There's a lot of things uh, in this culture today to discourage us, but we have every reason to be encouraged. We're sitting pretty, and I hope you recognize that every day as a believer. If you're a visitor with us here this morning, if you go out these doors around the left, there's a welcome center there. Some folks there that would love to greet you and give you some more information about our church. Well, let's bow our heads now for the benediction as we leave here with God's blessing upon us. Peter reminds us that after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. All God's people said. Amen.